turn to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. Brother Dan Peterson's breathing a sigh of relief. He didn't have to read scripture this morning. Haman's ten sons. We'll talk about them in a little bit more and a little bit later here, okay? All right. This morning, we're going to come to chapter 9, and we'll be looking at the first half of it uh, today. And uh, one of the greatest verses of the Bible, though, for a Christian is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, which says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now that seems to me to sum up beautifully what a Christ, what the Christian life is. This verse comes, uh, but a few verses after, uh, those that tell us that Paul went through a terrible experience in Asia where he was utterly, unbearably crushed and so he despaired of his life, of life itself. And out of that time of terrible pressure that came upon him, that awful sense of conflict that was his, he writes these words. And this verse kind of spotlights the truth that victory is supposed to be and should be the normal for every believer, a normal part of life for every believer. Are you in the victory side this morning? I trust you are. Are you thanking God, which causeth us to triumph in Christ? I recently read a definition of a Christian as one who is continually cheerful, completely fearless, and constantly in trouble. Isn't that the truth? Trouble is a continual experience as the Christian goes through this life. But in every time, in every place of conflict... God's will and God's provision for us is victory. And that's what the book of Esther gives to us here in a kind of pictorial fashion. Now, this is a wonderful story of God's process of delivering his people. We've seen how Haman plots the destruction of the people of God, issues a decree with the authority of the king by which the kingdom would ultimately uh, be destroyed if it carried it out. And then we saw how Mordecai moves to prevent this and through Esther brings about an awareness on the part of the king of what is going on. And at last the folly of Haman is exposed and the king hangs him on the gallows that are prepared for Mordecai. And then we have the issuing of a new decree, a decree which permits the Jews to defend themselves when the enemy comes against them. Remember, the decrees of the Medes and the Persians was once and for all settled. It was something that could never be changed. And so uh, they had to come up with another decree that would kind of uh, be able to counter the first decree. Uh, They couldn't do away with it, but they could counter it. And that's a beautiful picture of the seventh chapter of the book of Romans where you have the new law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which sets us free from the law of sin and death. Now, one of the wonderful things about the Old Testament is that we have many pictorial presentations of theological truths. Uh, If you learn to read your Old Testament as kind of a visual aid of understanding the New Testament, you'll discover that it's a beautiful and living book constantly teaching wonderful truth. Now, chapter 9 of Esther brings us to the actual moment of victory. 
It may help to point out that this account of actual victory is kind of limited to the first half of the chapter, but the action of the whole book really is necessary to bring this about. It's kind of like an iceberg. You know, an iceberg hides about three-quarters of the bulk beneath the surface, uh, and all that is seen is the one-quarter on the top. And so the moment of victory and the deliverance of your life is really a small part of the work that God is doing to bring about to bring you to that place. <coughs> Excuse me. So, first of all, let's look at a time for victory. A time for victory. In verse 1 and 2, uh, the day has finally come, the day which the unchangeable law of the Medes and the Persians was, had established, the day on which the conflict would actually occur. Now, these two unchangeable laws are destined to come to a head uh, uh, or a head-on clash on actually the same day. Now, one law which permitted the enemies of Jews to rise up against them and destroy them, and the other which permitted the Jews to rise up and defend themselves. Now, in your life, this pictures the truth that God never teaches you something without having an appointed time when he, you will be put to the test. It's easy to come to church service or to a Bible study or open your Bible and your devotions and learn marvelous truth that thrills you. You know, it's the great, it's great when truth kind of brings, breaks through suddenly upon your heart and your face lights up as the truth of God comes home and you rejoice in the knowledge of it. Kind of like that proverbial light bulb that goes on. Oh, that's what that means. Wow, that's wonderful. You know, head knowledge is one thing, but the heart experience is quite another. And the wonderful thing about God's dealing with us is that he never lets us learn a thing that he doesn't test us on later on in life. You know, when that light bulb goes on, watch out, there's a test coming. Because God will always test something that you learn. In other words, He has appointed a day when we learn out of the pages of, of Scripture and that there will be a test in the place of maybe pressure or daily experience. God is forever conducting examinations. I, I wonder, have you discovered that? Have you realized that in your life as well as I have? He's forever bringing us to a place of testing. For life is certainly more than waiting for the sweet by and by. The learning of truth is not simply mental uh, acrobatics, but it's designed to be tested in the nasty now and now of our daily experience. You remember the Lord Jesus took the disciples down to the coast of Sea of Galilee, and he said, let's get into a boat and let's go on to the other side. It was evening time, and as the little boat made its way across the sea, a great storm suddenly engulfed the sea, and the waves began to rise high around the boat, and soon the ship was in great danger of sinking. And we're told that Jesus was asleep in the uh, uh, hinder part of the boat, and finally the disciples came to him, and they shook him awake, and they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? I don't think we get the picture here sometimes. I don't think uh, uh, the disciples were really very as calm as it sounds. You know, when Mark tells the story there in Mark chapter 4, it doesn't sound like they're really that disturbed about it, but what they really said is, Lord, don't you care we're sinking? We're going down. 
But you know, this storm was a storm greater than they could handle. They were experienced sailors. Uh, they knew uh, what the actual danger of was of sinking. But the Lord, he was calm, even when we aren't. And he arose and he spoke to the waves saying, peace, be still. And immediately there was a great calm and the Lord turned to the disciples and said, why are ye so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Well, what, what's going on here? You know, when we read the context, you discover that he'd been preaching all day on the other side of the sea, and the theme of his message was faith. He had been teaching what faith was and how faith operates and how it can be accomplished in life. And so now the disciples are getting their examination, their test. The Lord had been teaching them faith, but now they were going to be tested. And you know what? They flunked. They got a big fat F. He had said to them, you know, let's go over to the other side. And remember, he had not said, let's go out in the middle and drown. He said, let's go to the other side. Isn't that what he said? But they had no faith in what he said, for they had forgotten who he was. And the examination came suddenly upon them to test how much they really had learned to trust as they had heard those marvelous words that day. I wonder, have we found that true in our own lives? As you read the scripture and God speaks to your heart, you say, oh man, this is wonderful. I see something here that I've never seen before. And then be very sure that in a very short time, something will occur that will put that to the test in your life. There is an appointed day for the testing of faith. And that's what we find here. There's an appointed day. This was the day. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the same. The time. But it was a time for victory. But then we go on in this passage and we find the pattern of victory. In these few verses, we've condensed the actual story of victory, the climax towards which this book has been building all along. Notice the stages of it. First of all, there's the freedom to fight. The first decree had come from Haman, the prime, the old prime minister, was to, uh, in effect, the enemies of uh, the Jews were permitted by law of the land to do whatever they liked to the Jews on that day. They could kill them, they could destroy them, they could take their property, but now another decree has gone forth, written by Mordecai, which declared on that same day, the Jews now, by law, permitted to defend themselves. Under the first law, the natural reaction of the Jews would have been to defend themselves uh, on the day their enemies came against them, but they had uh, if they had, they would have been outlaws. They would have been rebels against the law of the land. And the very law of the land was against them to keep them from defending themselves. And they could do nothing in their own defense without incurring the stigma of being outlaws and rebels against the authority and the law of the land. But now a new law has come into being which permits them to fight, sets them free, allows them to defend themselves with full authority and approval of the king himself. And again, this is a great picture for us. What a, what a wonderful light this shows upon the troublesome question that's raised in the book of Romans about the place of the law in a believer's experience. What relationship does 
a Christian have to say the Ten Commandments after we become a Christian? Well, there are two verses there in Romans chapter 7 that have been largely misunderstood, which beautifully explained by this passage here in, in Esther. It's the fifth and sixth verses of, Paul, of Romans chapter 7. Paul speaks about this matter of the law. And in verse 5, he says this, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. And that's what we have pictured here in Esther. The first law permitted the enemies of the Jews, in fact, ordered them, aroused them to attack the Jews on this particular day. And so it brought death throughout the whole country. And so Paul says, for when we were in the flesh, that is, in our own struggle to be good and to obey the law, our sinful passions were aroused by that very law. Have you not felt that? Someone tells you not to do something. When someone tells you not to do something, how do you feel? You want to do that very thing that you've been told not to do, don't you? Your sinful passions are aroused by the prohibition of the law. And so the law works to bring forth fruit unto death. But Paul goes on. In verse 6, he says, but now. That's a wonderful word in in the Bible. But. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. A new law has gone forth, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which has set us free from the condemnation of the old, so that we are free now to fight in the name of God and thus to overcome. Now, I want you to notice here in Esther chapter 9, it says there, uh, I believe in verse uh, uh, 3, and all the rulers in the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and the officers of the king helped the Jews. Now that's remarkable. The very people, if there had not been a second law, would have been opposed to them and would have been against them, and they're now fighting on their side, helping them by pointing out their enemies and showing them the ones they're to attack. That's an unexpected help as a result, of course, of the new decree. And we have the revelation here that even those circumstances seem to be against us, that we thought we were holding us in a bondage, have now become our helpers in the battle. I'm reminded again of the experience of Joseph. When his brethren sold him into slavery, and then years later he had risen to the highest seat in the kingdom short of Pharaoh himself, and his brethren brethren come and he reveals himself to them, and they're afraid and they're trembling for their lives. And then he said these words, But as for you, you thought it evil against me, but God mended unto good, to bring into pass, as to this day, to save much people alive. The very circumstances that, you know, sometimes we think are defeating us, bringing us into bondage through our passions within, are sometimes the very thing that God uses to bring us into light and help us along the way. I've often wondered when I read the book of Acts, what those Christians at Damascus might have thought when someone came 
leading into the city by the hand that poor, blinded Saul of Tarsus, who had come there breathing out threatenings and slaughter against them, and from whom they were now hiding in fear for their lives. But now he comes to be on their side. God was, has arrested the arrester and brought him into captive, uh, uh, captive to them. Of course, they were afraid, and they couldn't trust him at first, but gradually they saw that by the might of glory and grace, God had transformed the greatest enemy into their greatest defender. What a picture this is of what happens in the life of one who understands the victory that God has planned for us. Now there's another thing revealed here in verse 4. Not only did they have freedom to fight, but they had the power to fight. Verse 4 says, For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. That is, he grew more powerful. They were fighting now in the consciousness that a man of power was on their side. That Right up to the very throne itself, they had not only the authority to fight, but they fought in the dependence of his power. And throughout the book, Mordecai is a picture. We can say maybe a picture of the Holy Spirit as he works in our lives. You know, coming from the state of Kansas and having lived in Tornado Alley, I know a little bit about tornadoes. Now, that's not to say that some of you don't. Because I know that you do, and Kansas is not the only place where tornadoes happen, but it just seems they happen there more frequent. But I heard and saw reported that tornadoes did some strange things, like taking straw and uh, uh, driving it through the tree. There's also a report of a fire hydrant that was pierced with several slivers of wood. How could these kind of things happen? If I gave you straw and said, would you kindly go out and drive this through a tree? You'd say, what? You'd say, that's impossible. No, just take a big sledgehammer and take a piece of straw and just drive it right through the tree. You say, it's impossible. It can't happen. I've seen it happen. You see, the only answer to that is that the straw, weak as it is, was caught up in the power, the power of a tornado, and in the power of that mighty wind was able to do that which it could never do by itself. It's rather remarkable, isn't it? That even throughout Scripture, the Spirit of God is referred to as the wind, the breath of God, and this is a continual figure of His ministry in our midst. As we realize that God has now set us free from the law by a new life within the life of Jesus Christ, we learn that in the power of that new life, ministered to us continually by the Holy Spirit, it's quite possible to do everything that needs to be done. It won't always be to put straws through trees, but the Holy Spirit will never be be like a tornado if all you need is a gentle breeze. But if you need a tornado, that's what he is. He can move mountains. He can change circumstances. 
He can set aside kingdoms. He can overthrow thrones if necessary. Whatever is necessary, the man of power has the power to do it. That's what we see here. So they fought in the realization that man behind the throne is the one from whom the power comes. Not only did they have freedom to fight and the power to fight, but the point is they actually fought. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it says there that the thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and the slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. Now right here is one of those areas where there's much failure in application of truth to experience. And I know people will ask, well, what are we to do when it comes uh, when we come right up to the actual time of temptation? Perhaps the spirit of impatience is kind of working away, uh, wanting to break out again, and we feel pressure to break out in resentments or jealousy against another person or ambition comes rushing on and setting our blood on fire, and we, we urge us to lay hold on some circumstance to gain a position of prominence or favor. What are we to do? Is it enough just to say, just look to the Lord and go on? I don't think so. I know there are those people who say, well, just let go and let God. But God does it through us. He engages our total personality in this process. There is an actual battle involved in the Christian life. As there was here and many other accounts throughout Scripture, the battle is not aggressive action so much as simply standing on the promises that God has given and a refusal to be removed, to be moved from that position. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And what are we to do? Verse 16, it says, having done all, stand. Just stand. Take the place of victory. That God has given to you in Jesus Christ. Now if you question this idea, I suggest you go back and read again the gospel accounts accounts of, of our Lord in the agony of Gethsemane's garden. Hey, there was a battle going on there, wasn't there? And it wasn't simply a matter of looking to the Lord and immediately there came release and freedom from the struggle. No, there was a struggle. There was a terrible conflict. There was a dark pressure that caused drops of blood to be pressed out of the veins in which uh, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the anguish of that moment. But he would not budge. He would not move. He would not forsake the place that he had taken by faith so the enemy could be defeated. And James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, both are necessary. There are those who submit themselves unto God, but they don't bother to resist the devil. And so sooner or later, defeat comes. And then there are those who try to resist the devil, but they haven't submitted themselves to God. And defeat comes. You see, both are necessary. And though we have all power and all authority to do what all that needs to be done to defeat the, these passions within that keep us in bondage, we will never win the day until we take our stand and fight in the strength of God, refusing to budge or retreat, 
or go back from our position of faith. Now, here in verses 6 through 10, we have these ten sons of Haman. They are put to, be, uh, to uh, they're going to be put to death. Now, if we go back to chapter 5, we see there it says, And Haman told them of the glory and of his riches and the multitude of his children. And all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. And so Haman, he thought, well, I'm pretty great here. He thought a lot of himself. We talked about that in his pride. And although uh, we're not told a lot about his sons, I think we can find that his sons were a lot like him. If you study out what the names of uh, Haman's sons mean, you'll find a number of definitions. One commentator said that in the Hebrew, the names of the ten sons were given in a peculiar fashion. To each of these names, the Hebrew word self is attached. The names were written in a parallel column, and on the opposite column, the word self is repeated after each name. He said he was able to find eight of them, although two of them he couldn't really trace fully. But let me just i give you the names there of the eight and the relationship to this word self. Parshandetha means curious self. Dalphon means weeping self. Aspatha, could not find that one. Poretha means generous self. Adelia, could not find that one. Aridatha means strong self. Parmeshta means preeminent self. Arisii means bold self. Aridii means dignified self. And Vajestha means pure self. It's interesting, another commentator said that the names, when they were read, were all read with one breath. Try that sometime. You know, most of us have a hard time pronouncing them, let alone saying them in one breath. But he said they were all read in one breath to signify they had expired. They died in the same instant of time. Now, in this interesting account of all those who were put to death, or in the terms of Romans chapter 7, they were put in the place of death. Victory meant that all these manifestations of self turned awry, distorted, were put in the place where God puts them, the place of death, and refused any right to live. Anything less than this would be defeat. And we certainly live in a society where self is elevated. And we've seen, I've said it before, the cult of self is much alive today. And yet we're taught in the Bible that we are to die to self. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. We're to die to self. And yet you have here ten men who were just full of themselves because they followed their father who was full of himself. Now, immediately following the pattern of victory, we find the marks of genuine victory. There's a great temptation to imitate victory. You know, we do that even as Christians. We imitate victory sometimes. We put on a smile... And we pretend we're living in triumph over our circumstances. We come to church and say, somebody says, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Not really. 
but I'm really doing great. You know, down inside we're saying, I'm miserable. But we put on that smile and we fake it. We pretend we're living in triumph. Or we repress our impatience or we act as though we are very patient when inwardly we're just seething with impatience. Or perhaps we talk about our humility and our lack of desire for preeminence when all the time ambition surges within us and we are desperately proud. But this is a sham, a facade, an attempt to imitate victory. You know, it's seen in the way we greet one another. How you doing? Great. Ever had anybody say, when you said, how you doing? Well, let me tell you. You know, and then they start going through all the week's troubles and difficulties and everything that's going wrong at house, at the house and in their home and, and at work and so forth. I didn't want to know all that. All I want to know is, how you doing? Hello. But you know, there are certain signs of genuine victory which cannot be imitated, which invariably indicate God's victory is manifested in our lives. And these signs are set forth here in verses 11 through 16. And there are three things that I think mark a genuine victory. First, a personal victory. We have here kind of a double victory here in the capital city, Shushan. The day of victory was extended to the capital to cover actually another day. And the empire is a picture for us, the whole empire, the Persian empire, it's a picture of the circle of our influence. But the capital city is our own life. It's right here, our body, our life. And in the capital, there was a double victory. That is, more happens in your own life in terms of deliverance than the public ever finds out about. Isn't that true? And it means at least twice as much to you as it does to anyone else. You know, when you have a victory, someone else may not find out about it. But you know about it. And it means a great deal to you. Many of you have already experienced some victory. Maybe it was over jealousy or impatience or some other manifestation of the flesh. And as a result, you're much easier to live with. You're nicer to be around. But you know well that nice it is as it is for them, it's much more wonderful for you. You realize that far more of the place of release and victory than ever was manifest outside the capital city of your own heart. But there was a personal victory here. And there can be a personal victory in your heart, in your life. But secondly, there's a public victory. We notice here, Esther requested that the ten sons of Haman, who had been killed the day before, Haman had been killed the day before, now uh, uh, she requests they be publicly hanged, impaled upon the gallows, nailed up for everybody to see. It's another unmistakable sign of victory, a believer sharing something in a public way, the victory that God has given them. Now, this could be done by responding to a public invitation. 
The personal victory takes place when you respond in your heart to the Holy Spirit's prompting and you submit yourself to the will of God. But then the mark of a genuine victory is that when you're willing to share what God has done in your heart with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this isn't always done by making a speech or saying things in front of the church, but perhaps just sharing what God has done for you to a friend or even me as your pastor so that we might pray for you and encourage you in the Lord. It can be a demonstration that even as you might kneel here at the altar of prayer during the invitation, God has dealt with your heart and your desire is to live for him. And you are publicly hanging the dead sons of Haman as an encouragement to others. Ever thought of it that way? I bet not. I hadn't. I looked at this. Publicly hanging the dead of Haman. That's what we do when we, when we do something and share a victory that we have in the Lord with others. It's a sign of true victory. Don't keep the victories to yourself. What a blessing it is to find that people have victory in the Lord in their lives. What an encouragement it is. But then thirdly, it's a praising victory. This is the last mark in these three mentioned here in this count. It says, they slew of their foes 70 and 5,000, but they laid not their hands on the prey. That is, they did not enrich themselves. There was no attempt to gain self-advancement. You know, there's always an unmis- this is always an unmistakable mark of genuine victory. Spiritual victory. It's a victory where all the praise, all the glory goes to God. There are always some who want to be set free from certain driving passions in their life simply because it means a better chance for advancement, maybe in employment or solve a difficult problem in their home, or perhaps they hope to get along better with their mother-in-law. They seek to overcome their bad disposition because essentially they want to get a share of the plunder. They're looking for some advantage to themselves. But the mark of genuine victory is that you don't care A bit, what happens to you, you just want the glory to go to God. You don't care whether you're advanced by this or not. You want the victory simply because it's God's desire for you. You want to be free so that you can fulfill the desire of His heart in you. And when I see this attitude, I know the Holy Spirit has genuinely done a work of grace in a person's life. I read the story of a man who told It was not until his little girl became sick and was lying at the point of death, he finally woke up to what God wanted in his life. In very moving tones, he told how he struggled until he came to the place where he was ready to face the claims of Christ in his life. And the way he put it, he said, I did not say to the Lord, if you will make my little girl well, I will serve you. I didn't say that. He said, I said to God, regardless of whether you make her well or not, I will serve you. Now that's real victory. You see, that's a mark of genuineness. Have you been there? Have you found this? You see, God has set you free at last from those things that have enslaved and bound you in your Christian experience. Those manifestations of the flesh, such as bitterness and resentment and jealousy and pride and lust and all the rest. Well, the signs of it will be that you do not care about gaining an advantage for yourself and that it will mean far more to you than 
would ever be visible to anyone else, you are willing to make known what has been done in the private secret of your own self, a skeleton that you have kept hidden in the closet. And I close this message where I began. Remember, it was not written in some quiet academic moment where Paul was seated in a garden enjoying the beauty of the scenery and writing out the pleasure of the moment. This verse comes to out of the grind and the tussle and the bustle of life, out of the pressures and the confusion and the tensions and the frustrations of daily living. Can you identify? Out of that moment, the apostle says, Now thanks be to God which causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Can you say that with Paul this morning? Thanks be to God, which causeth us to triumph in Christ. That's not just victory through salvation, although that was a great victory. And we're going to talk about that this evening in our, our message in Hebrews. But that was a victory of sin over sin and death and hell. To be saved is to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior through, uh, through his death, burial, and resurrection. But it's much more than that. It's victory in Jesus even when life is difficult, even as a Christian. It is thanksgiving, which always, notice that word, always causes us to triumph. I know not what your need is this morning. Well, no doubt there are needs in your heart. And I trust that you'll respond to the working of the Holy Spirit personally, perhaps publicly, but most of all by praising our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven.